This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London Is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London Is Blue podcast. Uh, we got another Matt Law special. Matt Law in the house. How is it going, sir? Yeah, good, good. The, stop, the sun has stopped shining here, unfortunately, but otherwise fine. Yeah, it's uh, getting dark a little too early as we were eating dinner last night. My wife was uh, quite upset <laughs> that it was pitch black out already. So uh, we're, we're turning that corner here as well. Good. It feels more like football season weather, though. That's what I will say. The Get the jumpers out, as you might say. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I love it. Uh, well, we're coming off at, you know, international break. Quite, quite boring. Um, how, how was that for you? It's pretty quiet. Do you follow England? Did you follow the Chelsea players or did you just relax? I followed England. I, I do England when it's uh, international break. So I was in Poland and then uh, and then Glasgow. So sadly, no relaxing for me. I thought one interesting thing, um, I've got to credit this stat to somebody else, I, but I can't remember who told it me. That's the problem. Um, in the internationals, I think in the senior international teams, there wasn't a single Chelsea player who started for a European senior team in the international weekend. They obviously had some South American starters. But, I mean, I couldn't even begin to try and go back over the records of when the last time that would have been. So I was I was staggered by that stat. That would really add up to how things feel like they're going right now. So, <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean that as a negative particularly. No. It just shows how the club's changed. Oh, well, and, the, and just the current situation, because we would have had many internationals. Exactly. Injuries. It's just, yeah. exactly. It is a, a tough time right now. So um, anyways, we can go ahead and, and kind of pivot into uh, some of the things that are going on around the club, Matt, because even though there was nothing going on on the pitch, there's plenty going on off of it, which is what keeps things exciting. But let's talk about on the pitch first. Chelsea drawing away to Bournemouth, nil-nil, right? Not able to kind of correct the the results right before the international break. But I don't think the international break did Pochettino and the club any favors, right? Lavia picking up an injury at the training ground. Uh, other players not coming back. Casado with a knock. I'm sure he was super frustrated as well. We're seeing 12 injuries, um, you know, getting briefed at the media. How how is Potch? Because I know you've covered Potch for a long time at Spurs and things like that. How do you think he is managing this situation? Because I think he was a little bit um, had a little bit of a bite to kind of like protect what he has going on at the end of the match. Because there was some boos. I think they're more stray than collective, mm-hmm. and um, I think he he definitely tried to defend him in in the squad because he knows this isn't th- what really he has right because of the injuries and and whatnot. Yeah, look, um, I was actually a bit surprised he bit back because certainly in my experience with Pochettino, he's quite philosophical about injuries usually. I mean, he did say, I'm not going to cry about it. And albeit he'll be very frustrated. Um, he never made excuses for injuries in my time covering him with with Tottenham. Um, I've never heard him make excuses with injuries. He was always very much... It's part of the game. That's why you have a squad. We will find solutions. We will trust people. We'll put faith into people. We're not going to say that we're disadvantaged because the, the players aren't available, albeit Chelsea clearly are at the moment. So I was a little bit surprised a bit back. I think that was... I suspect... I wasn't there. I, I covered a different game at the weekend. But I suspect that he was just as frustrated with the questioning of the booing than he was the actual booing. Um, 
and that maybe him biting back was maybe towards slightly the question as much as it was the act itself. Um, also, I'd be interested. I was at the Forest game when there was booing as well. I, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the booing's for at the moment. Clearly, it's it's to show dissatisfaction. But I haven't yet got a handle on, and this might become clear in the next few weeks, whether there's dissatisfaction at Pochettino yet, whether there's dissatisfaction at the team, or whether it's just a wider dissatisfaction, because clearly there's been dissatisfaction around Chelsea for quite a while now because of what happened last season. I haven't quite managed to identify where, usually it becomes fairly clear where the booing's aimed at. I mean, that there was definitely booing aimed at Potter last season, for instance. Um, and there's definitely been instances where there's been booing aimed at specific players. Cucurella had it. I haven't quite identified where the booing's at yet, and I, I think that will become clearer over the course of the next few weeks should results remain bad. But yeah, I, I don't think Pochettino will be looking for excuses in the injuries. He'll clearly be frustrated. I think what's interesting about Pochettino in terms of how he'll be handling things at the moment, and this is something I know for sure, is certainly in early parts of his reigns and his seasons, and I'm not making excuses for him, I'm, I'm really not, he will put far more value in what he sees in performance, in what he sees in numbers, in what he sees in stats. he I've, I've covered him before when his teams have been winning and not playing well, and he can be pretty angry around those times. He doesn't put a lot of value in being lucky because he always thinks that will catch up with you. So let's say, let's, let's create a scenario now where Chelsea had maybe won three and drawn one and lost one of their first five games, but are actually playing really badly and we're, we're getting over the line. People like me in the early part of the season would be saying, that's fine, you know, results are what matter. He would definitely argue the opposite because he thinks that will definitely over time catch up with you and things will turn bad. Whereas he always has a lot of faith in performance and data and that that will eventually override results and that results will come off the back of that. So I think he will very much be focusing on that aspect of things while while results aren't aren't bad and i promise you that is not me making excuses for for what's going on at the moment yeah i i mean i get that too and it's got to be you know unbelievably frustrating where i'm kind of hedging myself is we watched him preseason when when he had the team fit and they were able like this team like has a ton of potential and uh Right now, there's a lot of players being played out of position, you know, forced to play out of position. I think the Enzo playing a 10 is a is a mistake. Hopefully, they revert back to that. But, I mean, 12 injuries this early, you know, Mata, um, Nkunku and, and Chukwameka being like our, our number 10 that both went down, it's been a struggle without a doubt. Um, but Connor Gallagher wore the captain's armband, Matt. This is Connor Gallagher that was being shopped around actively. Is this a signal from Poch? Because Raheem Sterling was on the pitch, Enzo Fernandez was on the pitch, Tiago Silva was on the pitch, but Connor were the captain's armband. That really, I think, surprised a lot of us. Surprised me. I can't quite get my head around it. I mean, Connor's head must be spinning. I mean, Connor's had a summer where some people at Chelsea have been basically trying to sell him. Some people have wanted to keep him. Some people have told him or, or indicated that a price is at a certain level. Other people have indicated that a price is at a different level. The manager, I think, has stayed consistent. Pochettino has stayed consistent. He has always seemed to believe that, that Gallagher can be somebody who can play well within how his system works. 
and he's clearly been happy with the way he's applied himself through everything. Whether there was a little bit of reward for the way he's dealt with everything in there, whether it was a message to the owners, I can't get my head around it. I thought it was an odd decision, I've got to say, to, to have your two captains out, to have, like you say, Thiago Silva on the pitch, Raheem Sterling on the pitch. Let, I know people talk about Enzo as a future captain, but less so Enzo. Um, I was really surprised by it. And I, I think, I actually think the captaincy issue at Chelsea, uh, again, feeds into and sums up of the, the slight chaos around the place where you don't quite know who's making decisions. I'm I'm still surprised it went to Reese James. I'm still surprised that Pochettino was very clear when he announced that, that it was together with the club, that decision. For me, I'm a traditionalist on that. I don't know why the club would have any input in who the captaincy is. I think that should be a manager decision. I don't really like that. I think that Reese, in time, will make a very good captain. But I think we've seen already this season that maybe he should just be managing himself and his body at the moment and not be having to think about a dressing room or, or wider issues. Chile, great guy, very laid back character. Again, not someone to me who I would have down as a captain. And then we've seen it in games, the armband sort of got passed towards Thiago in some games and he, he seemed to not want it. Is that because he didn't get given the captaincy and therefore he doesn't want anything to do with it now? Is he sulking a little bit on that? I don't know. This is me speculating. But And then for Connor to get the captaincy, the whole thing's just been a bit confusing. And to be honest, everything around Chelsea has been confusing for a long time now. And the captaincy issue just sums it up for me. It's very, very unclear how and why decisions have been made on that captaincy. You know, now that you mention it, Chilwell is known for his shenanigans, right? In the canteen, messing with people. You see the clips on social media. Like... He, that's a great role to have though, right? Like he'll always brighten the mood to your point. Is he going to be able to pull a player side and dress them down a little bit, get them back in line? Cause they're looking at him. They're like, it's hard to hear that message from him, but maybe he's going to mature into that because uh, he sees a different role for himself. The other odd confusing thing about that is we're not quite sure where Chile's role within the team is at the moment, because obviously he started the season as a sort of uh, makeshift left winger. And then he was he was dropped out of the, the starting lineup at the weekend. So again, that feeds into the confusion because he's not Chilwell himself in his position is not actually settled. So he's look, he's a great guy. He's very, very well liked. He's very well liked around, not just among the training ground, but the staff, um, the people who work at Cobham, the people who work at Stamford Bridge. He's very he's also actually very polite. I can see that in terms of having that role around the club would be good because he's very popular. And like I say, he's, he's very inclusive and very polite. Um, I just don't really have him down as a captain myself, but Hey, you know, I'm not there every day. I don't see it, but I've, my wider point on it is I've, I've found the captaincy issue very instructive of the confusion around Chelsea as a whole, because I don't really get any of it to be quite honest with you. Well, I mean, I understand it. It shocked a lot of us, as as we said, right? Very, very interesting um, to, just to see that. And uh, he did well. Uh, but when the match is that poor, it, it's hard to really pick bright spots in those days. <laughs> so um, he's continuing with that back fourth. Levi Cole's left back. 
um, which is tough. And that is part of the reason why Chilwell, I think, is being sacrificed a little bit. All right. Well, I mean, otherwise than that, like I said, we were, we, I guess we were talking and, and you were saying like, you know, what else is there to do but to be patient? Is it just the the injuries are to the point where, you I mean, you look at that bench, like what the only change I could see you doing is bringing in Cole Palmer. Other than that, there's not a lot on the bench to make a direct impact in the team. So it does seem like the worst time to be just surviving match to match because you look at the fixture list, Matt, like this was the run that you're like, cool, back to back to back to back wins before you get into the mid to late October run where it's just like chainsaw after chainsaw, like grueling match, grueling match. And we're not maximizing points whatsoever here. No, but you never know where... (laughs) It's so difficult to look through fixture lists and know where points are going to come from. We all look at them and we say, well, there's there's the three points, there's the three points. And then you sometimes look at a run of games and you say, we are not getting any points in those. I do it as a Villa fan. And yet, things don't work out like that. I mean, you know, Chelsea's best performance and best game so far this season has been against Liverpool, absolutely no doubt about it. They should have won that match, in my opinion, particularly in the second half. And yet that would have been the match out of the entire run of, of games of, at the start of the season where you'd have maybe put that one down as a defeat. It's, it's very difficult to, to guess second-guess the fixtures, but I do take what you're saying. There are points to be had from this fixture list and they've, they've not come. And it does make you worry about what could happen down the line. November, particularly after the next international break, looks very difficult, but they might relish that. They might prefer that. It might suit them a little bit better you don't know how these things are going to play out at all. I mean, Chelsea, Chelsea lost twice to Southampton last season, didn't they? You know, to what you would call absolute bankers for, for most clubs. Um, and yet they played okay in, in some of the bigger games. You know, they drew at home to Liverpool. They played okay away at Liverpool as well, I seem to remember. Um, so, yeah, very difficult to second guess, but I totally agree that these, these, these are games you would want to get some points in the bag to take some pressure off. But you're right about the bench. I mean, look, in reality, Chelsea should have forward options of Jackson, who I remain to be convinced whether he's a goal scorer, it's early days for him. But they should have Jackson and Kunku, who you'd imagine would be somewhere on the pitch. You should have a Brozier in and around the squad, either on the bench or playing as, a, as an option. And then you'd have, you know, forward options such as Madueke, Carney, whether Sterling's on the pitch, off the pitch, Sterling. There would, and yet, because of the amount of injuries, that Bournemouth game, you looked at the bench and there was nothing there. I mean, the kid Washington, you know, they, they were thinking about loaning him out on the last day of the transfer window. I think the way the juggle happened, I don't think he'd have necessarily been part of the squad. I think down the line, he might not be spend an awful lot of time on the substitutes bench. He hasn't played a lot of senior football. They can't rely on him. There was just attacking wise, there was nothing there for them to call on. You're dead right. There was Cole Palmer, but past him, there was there was really nothing there to call on. Um, and you know they've they've got to get some options back fairly quickly because you, you just didn't see any goals in it at all at the weekend. Nothing like three left-footed players, two traditional left backs, and a and a right wing to come off your bench and, and change the game when you need a points or three points. So uh, but we're going to take our first break. When we get back, uh, want to talk about what uh, a lot of the Chelsea legend match has changed the perspective. I think of a lot of fans. So thank you to the sponsors, and we'll be right back. There is no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. One of the things I love about Indeed is that they make hiring all in one place. It's easy because, well, candidates you invite are 
three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in the search. When you get one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with a quality candidate, it makes it go faster. And when you're looking to hire, the quicker you get the right person in the role, the better. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire sports. That offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com forward slash blue wire sports. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com forward slash blue wire sports terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed. A lot of people, I'm sure you've seen this matter, talking about the Chelsea legends that just played at the Bayern Munich legends at Stanford Bridge, and they could do better than the team. But I think what it's hearkening back to, and we talked, you know, is about the what Chelsea used to be. But the thing is, Chelsea have a new ownership group. They clearly had a different strategy this summer. Uh, to your point, you called out earlier, no international starters. Um, we've kind of hit the reset, and your coworker, Sam, uh, Wallace had the the big kind of breakdown piece of the break uh, about Chelsea and the club. And so I think that there's a lot of nostalgia and like pro Abramovich sentiment. Uh, we even saw Marina make an appearance at the bridge, right? All of a sudden, like there's a little bit of uh, dust being kicked up of, oh, what used to be. But here we are. It's different. It's a very different club. And Sam actually did a great job of kind of breaking down all these different pieces of the club. And yeah. I understand why Drogba says, I don't recognize this club anymore. It hurts to hear that as a fan for obvious reasons, but there is a bit of a reset happening, it seems like. <laughs> There's a massive reset already happened. You know, he's right. I, to be honest, I don't recognize the club. You know, I I, I find it, it's almost a reset moment to, to cover the club. You know, I Obviously, I went through the takeover process and was quite close to that. But just in terms of trying to get your head around what this club now are, it's a reset process from that. All the staff are completely different. It is like literally walking into a different club. If, if it wasn't for the fact it was at Stamford Bridge still and the, all the Chelsea branding was still there, it literally would be like covering a completely different club. Um, nothing, almost nothing has remained as, as of what was there before. Um, and I can well imagine that the fans still find that very, very difficult. And that is a challenge for managers as well. Potter used to talk about it. And I think Pochettino will find that, that, you know, it's all right talking about creating a new culture, but trying to change a culture within a fan base of what they've been used to for, for so long is, is really difficult. Um, and that's not to criticize the fans in, at all, because I would find it very difficult as a fan as well. Sam's piece was very interesting. You know, it talks about the fact that they've, They've got this 100-point team as the end goal. That's what they're trying to build. Um, Sam's wasn't an opinion piece. Sam wasn't trying to say that's right or wrong. He was doing it on on information and insight that he'd been given. Um, I mean, God, looking at it now, how long would it take? to Chelsea have never had a 100-point team. So it's a hell of an ambition. Some might call it quite an arrogant ambition um, because Chelsea have had incredible teams under Mourinho, under Conte, under Ancelotti, um, and they've never got to 100 points. So, you know, it's obviously built on looking at Man City and looking at what it took for Liverpool to to win a league. And But they're so far off 100 points, and you just wonder how, how, A, how achievable that is, and B, how long 
that that would take to actually get to. Um, but it's a really interesting ambition, and it clearly speaks to why they've gone so young. Because to build a hundred point team from scratch, uh, in terms of an immediate hundred point team, would would be almost impossible with the amount of money you would actually have to spend. You know, you would have to sign Harry Kane, you'd have to sign all kinds of ready made players. So they're trying to build a hundred point team through potential. And it's clearly a massive risk and it, it clearly comes with a, a risk attached to it. And I saw a joke, I saw somebody reply to one of the tweets on the 100-point team saying, you know, are they looking to to build that 100-point team over the length of an eight-year, is that a more sized over the length of an eight-year contract? But it might take that long, It might because it's a hell of an ambition. Um, and yeah, I, I found that, I hadn't heard that, you know, personally before, that, that the 100-point team was the sort of end goal and that that's what they believe will take them to where they want to go. But yeah, let's see how that develops. I mean, I'd, I'd struggle to see the current team being much, uh, at, the, at its very best, much past much a 70-point team at the moment. And and that would be really top. They'd have to improve a lot on what they are at the moment to, to achieve that. But, you know, there's a long, long way to go before they get to that aim. Very true. Obviously, uh, most listeners heard our preseason predictions of points, right, and where we had us. And I don't think too many people are taking a lot over 70 uh, in that sense. And, you know, the Premier League maybe is more competitive or it's regressed. I really can't tell. Uh, but either way, there's more points being taken off teams, whereas there was very much kind of a, a waterline that that everyone just fought for, you know, six on below those middle of the table, you know, top 10 positions are tougher to come by these days. So, you know, maybe you need to hedge like the 100 days are are over, but it's the project they're on. I'm a little worried about the money ball approach to it. Uh, But Sam, like you said, did a great job. He's also kind of talking about um, what the owners are doing in terms of trying to buddy up with people around Europe, right? And like when they go to the European Club Association and what they're trying to do within the Premier League and build relationships as well to make sure that, I don't know, like Chelsea can get business done better if they can create some strategic alliances. I guess like how do you interpret what Sam put out there in this regard? I think it is really interesting. I think it's interesting that that looks like the role that that Todd Bowley is going to be more moved towards. Um, He's going to be a lot of these sort of European Club Association meetings. He's going to be the one with the relationships, you know, with the other directors and the other owners a little bit more than than maybe the dad egg barley. He's going to be more sort of around the ambassadorial stuff, a lot around where a traditional chairman actually, you know, he still ho- holds the the title of chairman and a lot around where a traditional chairman would be. You know, Bruce, Bruce Burke would have done a lot of that before. And it feels like Todd is, is kind of, moving more in that direction than he is the sort of sporting direction of the club. I think Todd as well will be far more involved around, like you say, like the multi-club stuff, developing relationships around the multi-club around. I think the Todd side is more involved in the stadium and, and things like that, whereas the Clear Lake and the Badad side seem to have taken more of a front foot on the sporting decisions and the, the decisions around transfers and, and sporting hires. Um, I think again, Todd will be more involved in the broadcast stuff because that's where his his strength lies. But yeah, it seems to be breaking down like that, which is kind of interesting. That maybe Todd will take on a bit more of a traditional chairman role than sort of the co-owner role as it's been up till now. Um, and look, that he's looking for areas of growth. It's quite clear, you know. 
Let's forget about where Chelsea are now in terms of the league table and the difficulties they're facing on the pitch. They are looking big time at, at growth. You know, they've got some big ticket projects. You've, we've got quite a big week this week in that the con consultation period on the on their winning bid for the Stoll site next to Stamford Bridge. We're talking on Tuesday. The consultation period ends Wednesday. Chelsea should have some some conclusion on that within the next month over actually acquire, formally acquiring that land. Um, there's been a little bit of sort of disharmony around some people involved in it over whether it should go through, but I think it will go through. So that that then accelerates the decisions that need to be made over the stadium. I'm told they're still analysing hard on whether to go full tilt for the redevelopment on Stamford Bridge or leave it open still on, on looking at that other site. But I think stall decisions should help that. Um, I think they want to redevelop. They want to start a redevelopment. Well, they've already actually started a redevelopment program at Cobham, but they want to increase that and, and get to grips with that a bit more. And they clearly want to carry on down the multi-club route model. Portugal is their big area of interest at the moment. But these are three really big ticket areas of, of growth they're looking at. They're also looking very hard at, at what can be maximised through broadcast. Um, I mean, we have a situation this weekend where Chelsea are playing at 2pm on a Sunday against Aston Villa. Forget the fact I'm a Villa fan. It's a very attractive fixture. You know, Villa have been good in recent recently over the last sort of 12 months or, or a bit less. It's considered quite an important game in that, you know, Chelsea really need to win it. It should be a good competitive game. It's not on anywhere in England. The broadcaster's not showing it, which... You know, it's staggering. And Bowley and, and other owners will be looking at that saying, what is going on? Why have we got big matches like this that aren't available on TV that have been played at 2pm on a Sunday? And they will be looking at all those areas of growth at the moment. That's a huge thing that, that Bowley and the club are involved in. Um, and something that's just, just going to become a bigger and bigger priority, no matter what happens actually on the pitch in the short term. You know, that is not going to impact their long-term growth proposals at all i there's a lot there right is to your point like how much was the stole ground going for again like tens of millions 80 million 80 like, million 80 million is is the is the number that chelsea have, have got preferred bidder status with and wait i'm looking at the aerial shot now like it definitely opens some things up the stadium is still massively squeezed in so just to confirm on the stadium, is it stole ground for current site location or Earl's Court? Or is there some kind of combination where Earl's Court is the temporary? Because that would be another how many hundred million as well? Look, I, th I think to try, and, um, to try and break it down a little bit. So the stole site is very, very interesting to Chelsea, no matter what they do. Let's, let's put it that way. Because what they can do with that site, no matter what, is house a lot of officing on that site, which currently is within the sort of Stamford Bridge Stadium confines, which gives major restrictions around there. But even were they to move away, they could still have a lot of officing around the Stoll site and a lot of stuff around the Stoll site, obviously that would be near the, the site of the old ground that they could still use for stuff and that would still open up a new site predominantly just for like, football stadium as it were so 
that stall site op opens up a host of opportunities, whether they stay at Stamford Bridge or whether they leave Stamford Bridge. But were they not to acquire the stall site, I think it would be very hard for them to prioritise staying at Stamford Bridge just because I don't think they would have the space they felt they needed to do what they could. So the stall site has been absolutely crucial in keeping the Stamford Bridge staying at Stamford Bridge alive, really, realistically, I think. I know it would have to go through the CPO, and I know that there is a scenario where they'd have to stay at Stamford Bridge no matter what. I get that. But in terms of what they want to do, keeping Stamford Bridge as a, an option that they are prepared to really realistically invest in, Stoll is massive for them because they can not only house offices in that area, they can also use it to open out a huge entrance into Stamford Bridge with... You know, were they to redevelop the, the stadium, you might find that the sort of main reception entrance area and sort of f what would constitute a new fan zone would all be within that open area. Um, and then it would allow what we call Stamford Bridge now to be purely stadium with no sort of officing within it, with no sort of necessarily even club, club shop where it is now. And it would open up a lot of space. It, it doesn't solve everything by any means. There's still a lot of problems associated to actually redeveloping Stamford Bridge into what they would. And like I say, some might look at it and think, well, why on earth would you buy Stoll if you were going to think about moving still? Well, as I say, Stoll still offers them a lot of opportunities, that site, even if they move away, because they'd still end up doing something around Stamford Bridge and having, off, like I say, some sort of offices and all kinds like that around Stamford Bridge. Yeah. A again, like if they could somehow buy up the property between them and, and Fulham Broadway, that would open up to make a, and give them the ability to do it. But uh, for American fans, it is not that simple, right? Uh, the In the U.S., the leverage is with the teams, not in the U.K. It is quite the opposite uh, as far as getting planning permissions and things like that. So, Yeah, I mean, if you want to look at – if you want to try and look at a good example of what they'd be looking to do around the stall away from offices is look at – the lady who helped them with the Dodgers is involved in the in the whole stadium project – I, it's really bad of me. I can't remember a name off the top of my head. I've written her name in plenty of articles. But there's a lady who is very much involved in the Dodgers one, who's involved in, in now the Stamford Bridge project. And she was very much in charge of creating the the sort of fan zone and fan experience area at the front of the Dodgers stadium. Janet and I think it, Marie Smith. Yes. So if you look at what she did at the front of the Dodgers stadium where there's a fan experience with eating and stuff going on, I think you have to imagine that were they to redevelop Stamford Bridge, that's what she would be looking to do within some of the area that would be opened out by Stoll. Yep. So uh, to tie that down, Dodger Stadium rebuild, uh, Boston's Fenway Park, and Atlanta Centennial Olympic Stadium uh to help with the u.s audience so interesting well let's take our last break but there's actually a lot more of this article that we're going to continue to cover uh including contracts uh and and what the future kind of holds for this team so thank you the sponsors we'll be right back are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region trying to keep your private time private well let me introduce nordvpn if you're bored of u.s streaming services why not take it for a spin in the uk using NordVPN and at the click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. 
Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. You know, like the name of the podcast to get a huge discount off of your NordVPN plan plus one additional months for free. It's completely risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. We all love to binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. Threat protection, they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there is literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, They'll send you a refund and you can pretend the entire situation never happened, just like Chelsea's 2022-2023 season. Check out my link at nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue to get your subscription started today. Nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. All right. Again, you rattled off a lot of things in the ambition. <laughs> and they are we're I mean, we're talking 2.5 billion to buy the club. A billion plus for the stadium. They've spent a billion on players. Like we, there's one thing you can't say that this group is, and it's committed. They are like, I don't even, it's kind of hard to comprehend how fast some of these things are going and just how much cash is being injected into the club. Again, I think that there's concerns or, you know, rich people problems of complaining that maybe the right players weren't spent or, you know, heaven forbid, we're complaining about $115 million Casado. That's, again, lavish problems that we're trying to kind of manufacture because the results are there. Um, one thing before we get into the Sporting Lisbon discussion is just uh, the long-term contract strategy that Sam laid out here. I'm almost more inch surprised at how upset or painful the owners found Rudiger Christensen walking was than anything. I think that just blew their minds. And it's clearly it's clearly really been something that's impacted on them a lot and, and probably too much to be honest with you by judging by Sam's piece because I, I I don't think they should have been impacted by it quite as much as they were, but it's clearly they've come in and that's happened and they've seen what's happened. And it's clearly absolutely blown their minds that they've got in that situation. Now, you would be able to talk to me better than I would know about how how would it relate to US sport? Why why would it blow their minds so much? You know, do you, can you not have talent walking away for free in US sport? Does that not happen? Because I I can only I can only think that they look at US sport and just think this couldn't happen in US sport. I think like the teams have a lot more leverage. Um, there's not a big advantage because there's not these transfer fees in U.S. sports. Yeah. So you either trade for players or if you let a contract run down, it's because you don't want that player anymore and you're like releasing them. So yeah. I think the fact that there is a player with value that's just able to walk away and sign whatever they want, and we call that in the U.S. free agency, some players explore, but it's not like this. And again, there's none of these transfer fees. So if yeah. you want a free agency, like LeBron might leave the Lakers and he might go right back to them. It just frees him up to negotiate with all these other teams. Okay. And there's that situation. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's obviously killed them in terms of killed their mindset that two players who could probably fetch, I don't know, what would, what would Rudiger have been maybe worth at, at the time he went? He was obviously 
he wasn't on his best season, but he also had, had, had come up a lot. He, he's probably at least a fifty million pound player, I'd guess, forty fifty million pound player at his age. Um, obviously, some injury issues in there as well. Christensen, because of his still the potential that he holds, probably again forty million pound player. So they probably look at it and think these are two guys who may be worth together about a hundred million pounds, and they've walked away for free. That's obviously absolutely blown their minds, and they've they've set an entire philosophy around it which i i maintain i think is an overreaction and i don't think that you should set an entire philosophy around it but i get that they want to protect themselves and they don't want to be caught out like that again and what they obviously found was aside from christensen and rudiger was when they came in that there were a lot of players who were heading towards this situation as well and it clearly panicked them I think they've gone too far the other way because now they almost have a, a philosophy whereby once a player gets to two years, it's renew or sell or it's try and renew or sell. And obviously players within that, it's we all listen to anything for. Hence they they accepted a bid on Ian Matson on the final day of the transfer window and he didn't go. I think they've overreacted to that. But I get it. I do get it. But it has impacted an entire contract philosophy, it would seem, with the long-term contract philosophies, which has been explained in that, to them, a five-year contract is basically a three-year contract. An eight-year contract is basically a six-year contract. Because like I say, what they have decided they do is they now make a decision with two years to go. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's a lot of it too, right? But I've heard this before. You know, I, I cover Tottenham as well. Tottenham went through a period where they said this. They Tottenham went through a period saying, we are never going to let a player get within two years of his contract but it just they found it didn't work yeah because they 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 just didn't want to sell when push came to shove they didn't want to sell their best players just because they were going to enter the last two years of their contract so it it didn't actually work for them it was great theory but they had to ditch it and i think in time although these contracts are so long it'll be a while till we get to here chelsea will find that if their best players get to two years and they're on the cusp of winning things or they are competing for things, in reality, they'll find they can't really actually sell them and that they will have to take the risk of going into those two years. That You can't stick to that in reality. It has to be fluid. For sure. It's definitely not black and white on these things. Uh, and more and more players seem to be comfortable with running down their contracts. It used to be they want the long contracts to essentially guarantee income, um, you know, there's been a trend lately. A lot of players have taken the free or the Bosman is, has become known. Well, this is it. I mean, it's going, you're dead right. It's actually going against the trend as well because players more and more want the power for themselves. And what you'll also find now is because players are increasingly looked after by their families rather than an outside agent, their families would rather they stick through a full contract and then they try and take the payday at the end of the contract because the money stays within the family. Whereas agents, where players can move between agents, agents are actually more inclined to go for the quick contracts or the quick moves because they're constantly trying to keep the money going, keep the money going, keep the money going because they don't know whether they will lose these clients. But if a family is looking after a player, they're never really going to lose the client and they, they will then be more inclined to run down the contract right till the very end and either take it with one year to go or actually take it with the full year to go. So it does also go against the trend of the way certainly players and families are looking at their contracts these days. Yeah. And again, good shout out here that they're saying, look, if you're on a five-year deal, 
to your point, they got to make a decision within the two-year period. It's only three years. They're trying to kick out the negotiation process having to happen so frequently. They just felt like it was nonstop contract negotiations, and they're trying to extend that out. I, I can't remember if it was this one, and I'm trying to scan quick, or is it a different one where they're talking about there's also a thought that um, – picking up players on a free actually maybe aren't cheaper because the inflated wages, the inflated agent fees and things like that either. Yeah. I mean, the, the point, the, the point was not only actually where, where the free transfers, but also even sometimes players on clauses. I think Erling Haaland was used as an example because obviously Erling Haaland, I think his clause is about right. 50 million, but the, you know, the true cost of that deal is probably, you know, 200 million, something like that. So what, what they were saying is sometimes these deals that look like great deals on the face of them, the associated costs make them not great deals. Again, I'm not so sure about that. I still think a good a good free transfer is a good free transfer, even if you're paying an agent's fee and, and the wages are topped up. Um, and look, clauses can be very, very useful for, for buying players. So I, I think maybe they were trying to use that maybe to, to help make their points of why their philosophy is good. I, I get that the the theory behind some of it, but again, I think it's fluid. A good free transfer is a good free transfer. There are expensive, bad free transfers out there as well. You know, it's like anything, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, exactly. And Holland was the the example here, and it was this article, so that's good. And Holland was well worth the money. You know, th this is. I would say Lewandowski would have been a hell of a free transfer. <laughs> exactly, and some of the some of the deals that you look at sometimes sometimes when you look at deals they can look so expensive I remember when Rio Ferdinand went to Manchester United I think it was for 50 million at the time and the wages were huge and you looked at it and just thought that is such an astronomical deal and yet he more than paid them back he was a top class player a top class defender for them for a very long time it ended up being well worth the money sometimes the massive deals if you get the massive deals right and this is where I would argue on Caicedo and, and Enzo if you get the massive deals right they end up looking good value in the long term but you've got to get them right yeah no one's picking up an ed nazard for 30 million anymore like that is gone <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all right uh sporting lisbon uh are the next name kind of on the blue co strategy here um obviously we got league on club strasbourg who i will continue to say with an american emphasis because i cannot <laughs> pronounce it in the French dialect. Uh, heads up, everybody. Nick is actually recording a, another podcast with JJ about Strasbourg right now, so we will have an update this week. But Matt, the multi-club model is banging. Um, are you surprised that there's not more progress made here? Or does this seem reasonable? Because there is a lot of capital that is being allocated to get into these clubs. But sporting... It would be a minority stake is my understanding. What's the, you definitely get a top club, European, a lot of history, winning uh, the the Portuguese Premier League many, many, many times. Um, what do you know, like what's the upside to take a minority stake in a bigger club versus just buying a smaller club? Well, that is a really interesting question. I, I think obviously the upside in, in getting some sort of investment into sporting would basically be the 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 sort of first refusal option, quite frankly, in terms of players trading between both clubs, being able to use both clubs as a loan, the, the sporting upside of having that first refusal with a club like Sporting Lisbon 
would be huge, uh, to be quite honest with you, in terms of being able to take South American players in there to, to get big. I mean, because it's big club experience. It, it will come with pressure. That That's what you would get, you know. With a lot of these multi-clubs, you can get players first-team experience, but a lot of them don't play with massive pressure because the clubs tend to be smaller clubs within their divisions where the expectation is not there to win every single week. Obviously, European experience as well, stuff like that. It would, it would On a sporting side, it would almost be unprecedented. I was trying to think whether I can think of a comparable example of a club in the modern day having a sort of tie-up with a club as big as Sporting Lisbon. And it, it's really difficult to think of. Um, I think it would be quite groundbreaking the way. I don't like it because I think that Sporting Lisbon is a club with a massive tradition on it, of its own. And to, to think of them, even on a minority investment scale, going into some sort of multi-club model, I would just find that, again, I often talk about the fact I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I would find that slightly unpalatable. I wouldn't like that for European football. Because um, to me, Sporting Lisbon are a huge, huge club. But it would be very exciting for Chelsea and for the owners to... And I think it would be quite groundbreaking to have that alliance with a club with the history and as big as Sporting Lisbon, be it with players, with managers, with coaching staff, with staff around the scenes. It would offer them huge opportunities. And look, I can see taking the emotion out of it and the romanticism from my point of view, I can fully see why it's very attractive for them to explore. And it's, I've got to say it's incredibly ambitious to look at a club like that for, for potential multi-club ownership. But it would have to, I think within the rules, it would have to be some sort of minority style. I don't think you could get it through through the rules um, of, of, of the, particularly with their European, you know, Sporting Lisbon are always going to probably be in some sort of European competition. I think it would be very difficult to get by the rules of anything more than a minority investment. But yeah, very, very ambitious. Well, I, I mean, a lot of the multi-club model is really coming down to financial flexibility, right? There is like development pathways for sure, but what City are able to do is skirt a lot of financial regulations and things. Like Air Moy is my favorite example, right? Yeah. Played in their Australian club, came to City on a free, never played, never put on the shirt, <laughs> immediately sold to, I think it was Brighton at the time. And it was an immediate injection of like 30 million, right? Like came essentially from Australia to Brighton through City, plus 30 million on the balance sheet. And, and that's what they were able to do with a lot of different players. And, and this is what Sam really drives home and is like, look, Abramovich was able to sell players. We had the loan armies, a lot of things able to do. Times have changed. And they're saying that even City Football Group have been have shown that you can do it at an even bigger scale with this multi-club model. So that's why I'm always interested in like buying small clubs where you have complete control versus this actually kind of caught me off guard in the sense of, to your point, competitive, pressure, uh, top club in Europe. Um, I, I'm just waiting to kind of understand how that might work uh, because you have less control and less ability to, to impact things. You do, but I mean, I suppose, look, let's try and take an example. Let's say David Datro Fofana, who is on loan at Union Berlin, I think, who 
play Real Madrid in the Champions League this week as well. So that's a hell of an opportunity for him. He still hasn't scored for them, by the way. Um, but <laughs> um, let's take him as an example. Uh, were he to go to Strasbourg and score 20 goals, let's say, and Chelsea had full control of it and, and or very big control of it, whereby he he plays every single week and he scores 20 goals. He comes back to Chelsea. They still don't think he's quite good enough for Chelsea. You could They signed him for 11 million. If he scores 20 goals in Ligue 1 at Strasbourg, you're definitely looking at sort of 25 million. Were David Datro Fofana to go to uh, Sporting Lisbon on loan, much bigger gamble because much bigger chance of him not playing. But were he to score 15 goals at, at Sporting Lisbon, you're probably almost certainly looking at 30 million plus for, for David Datro Fofana then if you came back and you didn't want him. So... Again, the risk and reward is probably greater with with having someone like a Sporting Lisbon within there that you'd have to be take a risk in terms of sending players there to play because they might not play and therefore that it it might not serve its purpose. But were they to play and perform and you decide they're not quite what you want for your team, crikey, the value, you know, put players in the Portuguese league, we see how much Benfica managed to sell their players for, Enzo being a great case in point. The, the value that that would put on them would be absolutely enormous. If Dacho Fofana this season does get going with the goals and scores 15 goals for Union Berlin and he came back to Chelsea and they wanted to sell him, they bought him for 11 million. You might you might get 15 million for him then, I would say, something like that. So, yeah, it's, it's looking at risk and reward. It's really interesting, but it's, it's a great point. It is a great way of... You know, City have been phenomenal at it recently. There was a left back as well, wasn't it? Was it Angelino, the left back who was on loan somewhere, did very well. He went for, for a good fee, almost came back to City. Uh, did he go to Leipzig? I think he went to Leipzig in the end. The, the, there's a lot of cases. Douglas Luiz at Villa, absolutely fantastic example. Douglas Luiz at Villa, he went off to a Spanish club, played for a year. Villa bought him for about 15 million with him, ne- never having played in England. Uh, City actually retained a buyback on him for a year. They could have bought him off Villa after one year for 30 million. They they didn't bother doing that, but they made 15 million on him, never played in England. I'd actually argue he's probably now a 40 million pound player, actually. But he's a, he's a great example of how that system worked for them. They made 15 million pounds on a guy who'd never played in England. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm expecting a couple more. But again, just the ability to do these deals, a uh, ton of cash. Like this isn't simple. Right. And to make sure the structure's right is is the the most important part. So uh we'll have to see. Uh what do you think, Matt? I've got a kit that I ordered that's supposed to arrive at the end of September. Think it's gonna have a, a sponsor on it? It's a good question. I knew you were gonna get me with that. I woke up this morning and thought I should put in a call to making a, a check on Infinite Athlete and things have got away from me and I haven't made that check. I will promise you that on the next show, if the sponsor is not there, I will a day beforehand get you a proper exclusive sponsor update for you that's all i can promise you if there is i mean would you go to the mega store and buy me a blank kit just so i could have that would you ever <laughs> find yourself in the mega store map buying a chelsea kit i'll wire you the funds yeah I, I would i would i'd be a little bit scared of someone deciding to have some fun on social media with that <laughs> were they too I'd, I'd go in with um with a big coat and my hood up or something like that. I don't look, it's not like I get, I'm not some sort of celebrity who needs to worry about get recognized, but just on the off chance, there was one person in the hundreds of people in there who might recognize me. 
I would I just <laughs> not want to get too much fun on social media with that. Uh, funny, funny, funny. Yeah, we'll wait and see what happens. Um, you know, it, it's just kind of fine. I don't think anyone's too bothered, but you know, it, the last thing in Sam's piece was talking about maximizing all parts of the club and commercial value is one of them. And it seems like the one that hasn't clicked really at all. Uh, kudos for getting the app updated. Like I actually appreciate that. They've got some integrations and things, but from a commercial value standpoint, you know, Trivago has got to be thrilled because they get all the spotlight because they're the only one around right now. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. I, I, I'm, yeah, given, look, I do think it's one thing to, to give them some stick over is the sponsorship because I can forgive them mistakes within football because they've come into football cold. They've got to learn on their feet. I think they're going to learn. It's clear they're going to learn by their mistakes. I've said before, it might take them a little while. I still think they'll get there football-wise. They're willing to spend enough money. They're willing to hire enough people. I think in time, they will get there football-wise. These guys were meant to be brilliant at attracting sponsors and commercial ends, and they talked a lot about it when they came in. They should have a sponsor by now. It's a big black mark next to their name. Sorry to them for saying it, but you know that is a failure on their part. Kit looks great. And I, I really like the third kit, actually. Kit looks great. No problem with that. If I was a Chelsea fan, I'd be buying it with a blank thing and certainly never updating it with the sponsor. But look, it's a failure. They should have a sponsor on by now. Yeah, no, I agree. So, all right. Well, I, I won't push you. I think that there's many other people out there that would would get that kit for me and 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 ship it through the Royal <laughs> Mail over. I would. Loads of contacts. It. You can get way better people than me to get you that kit. And yeah. I'm sure you've got contacts who won't even make you pay for it. I, w- I was just testing our friendship, so I appreciate that. Because we've got the Matt Lott, London is Blue Derby coming up, don't we? Yeah, if you want to call it that. If you want to call it that, that's fine. I, I will be there covering it, and I tend to manage to sort of switch off from my allegiances during the game. And then should we get a result, I'll enjoy it when I watch it back when I get home. But yeah. are you uh, Your team's going to Poland ahead of that, aren't they? Poland on Thursday. You, do you know what? Um, I think... I think actually Chelsea playing Villa at a very good time. It's been 14 years since Villa have had to try and combine European football with league football and they are not used to it at all. So I think you're playing at a very good time because I do think it's going to take Villa a little while to get used to that. And I think we're going to suffer some defeats on the back of Thursday nights for a little while until we do get used to that. So Look, Chelsea are in a bad spot with injuries. I get that. But they, I think they're facing Villa at a good time this weekend. Yeah. It, it, look, anything that we can do to stack the deck in our favor. Uh, I think Villa is is West Ham, right? They've got to manage both. West Ham struggled in the league, did really well, though, in the conference league, you know, and, and won it. And so um, they seem to have bounced back this season. It, it is a tough thing. We've seen a lot of teams, even Leicester City, when they won the Premier League in the magical fashion, struggling to take on the Champions League. By the way, you imagine that in hindsight. Now we look back to that, like Leicester City won the Premier League and then got dropped into the Champions League the next season. And like Wes Morgan and Jamie Vardy were leading the back line and the front line. Wild times in hindsight. They did a decent job of it as well. Yeah, they cope. They cope quite well. They cope better with the Champions League than they coped with the um, the Conference League. They had a really bad. They didn't go down the season in the Conference League, but they struggled with the Conference League too. I think Villa will find it tough combining the both. I'm I'm just here for the ride. I'm just going to enjoy it. Hey, Unai knows what to do. He's a big, you know, Europa League success, and things like that. So uh, that's a yeah. leg up. But anyways, I think that'll wrap us up, Matt. Lots going on. Appreciate your time as always. But Chelsea fans, a lot of content coming your way. So until next time, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.